this week, three sides of the coin goes almost all cheap trick. This band is no past, how cheap trick became cheap trick. Upcoming book, we got the author, and we talk kiss and a lot of cheap trick this week. Oh, you Mike, we also talked about a lot about unreleased kiss stuff too. They're going to find that out and then they're just going to piss and moan because you don't tell them the, what the full truth is. We're going to have an episode. I promise you guys, we're going to have an episode in a few weeks where we answer the question, do we know who's releasing everything? You're going to be blown away by that episode. This is Three Sides of the Coin, talking all things KISS. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Three Sides of the Coin. The hairy co-host isn't here this week. Alexa, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Mark, Mark, have you listened to last week's episode yet? At least the beginning of it. No. You've got to listen to the beginning of last week's episode where Lisa shares the story of her bikini bottom falling off completely when she's out at the lake in front of a group of people. Oh, that's pretty funny. Oh, God. And the best part is when she's describing it to us and her son James comes up and he asks her if they saw her boobies and she's like, no. And then he goes, did they see your hairy? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and Tommy and I just oh. lost. Oh my God, that's funny. No, that I, haven't, mo- I haven't checked anything on it. Oh, uh, you've got, you will, you will be rolling and laughing. You don't have, don't, don't waste your time on the rest of the, the podcast. Yeah. Just, all I know is, all I know is my, I went full uh, Rob Halford router. I don't know what the fuck. I, I know. I was telling, I was telling Michael before our, our, our cable. Yes, we still have cable. Our cable went out over the weekend, but it's been just fucking up like the past week. And then this weekend it went like full out. And then I had to call. Our local it's like the provider. good old days. Yeah. Look, man, don't, don't go. Oh, you got to start. I don't I, look. I, I spent, a, I watch, I watch fucking sports and news. I don't give a fuck about the rest of anything else. All I know is that coming up here from like October through June, pretty much I can watch hockey every single night. So I don't need to fucking watch anything else. I don't, I just don't care. So um, I just want to watch sports and, want to watch the weather I, that's all tv's good for there's really not well i, I like the rockford files <laughs> rockford files and mash oh i love mash mash is is a definite series that's good for just forgetting all about all the bullshit all, all kidding aside you know what if there is one thing liz and i both like watching true crime anything true crime is good i'll watch that but other than that it's sports and I am I am yeah. currently binging for the third time The Sopranos. Never seen an episode. You know, when it was on and it was the hot happening thing, I'd never watched it. But now, I don't know, I probably first watched it, binged it like five, six years ago. Wow. Just 
fantastic. I look at stuff. I'm like, I've never seen, not once have I seen an episode of Friends or Sopran. All these legendary. I will tell you, I do know my Seinfeld. Though. I, I do like that show. But yeah, man. I mean, for the most part, every time there's. And I see these things. I'm like, what, what was that syndication? That show's still on. I just, you know, when you're flipping through. You're like holy shit! I'm like, hey, I don't hey, flip hey. through on TV. I flip through on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. And Mark's going, "Who are those girls?" Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> much it. Hey, speaking um, of girls, mine's mine. Uh, mine made dinner. Upstairs. Yeah. So, so before we get into this week's interview, a couple things I want to remind everybody: you got to go check out the brand new Three Sides of the Coin Radio. We just officially launched it about a week ago. All the info you need, threesidesofthecoinradio.com. Um, for those who have some technical experience, you just need an Amazon Alexa device or the free app and just say, Alexa, launch Three Sides of the Coin Radio. And now she's going to probably try and launch it over here. And you will listen to... I think there's about. Is that Christmas music? <laughs> She's talking. Dude, I, I, I would not use that thing. I would freak out if that was in my house. Alexa, stop. That's the only thing that sucks about it. If you mention her name, then everything answers. But anyway, we've got we've got about 50 Kiss songs in a playlist right now running 24-7, 365. Anytime you want to listen to Deep Cut Kiss, you're not going to hear rock and roll all night. I can promise you that. That's you the one guarantee. not hear rock and roll all night on our station. If that's what you want to hear, tune into your terrestrial rock station because that's all they're going to fucking play. I think we got a playlist that goes from like a hundred thousand years to parasite, to burn, bitch, burn, to let's put the X in sex. <laughs> so it's all over the place. We got some great guest playlists coming up and we're going to give you a chance shortly to create some playlists for us as well, but go give it a listen anytime you want. 24, seven, three, 65, three sides of the coin radio.com. Um, all right. Mark, I, I believe you have some commentary you want to. Well, a commentary and 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 a little uh, a little heads up. Um, uh, first, the fun stuff. Um, finally, uh, if anybody here is in the Detroit area, uh, Friday, September sixteenth, uh, Left for Dead is back. Where's our first show since COVID? I mean, can you believe it? And. Uh, to make things even more interesting for me, it's a four band bill. Uh, I am now playing drums in a Ted Nugent tribute band. So, and, and left for dead is opening up that show. So I'm playing double duty that night. Um, so I'm going to be letting people know, cause I've been having people ask me for so long now, are you guys going to play again? Well, this is our first post COVID show. So um going to be pretty interesting again. Um, uh, Friday, September 16th at the token lounge here in, uh, in, uh, in Detroit. Anybody's here. I'd love to come, uh, come out and see us play and, uh, going to be a fun night. So anyways, 
also speaking of music um as you guys know i've mentioned it many times uh i've been working on the creatures of the night deluxe box set and i also you know much like a what's that ding ding oh oh. um you know much like i have you know the destroyer box set and other you know kiss things that i've helped out with but guys i see people and, and this is the this is the funny part i'm very I'm very happy you get to hear the music before I start people getting me, sending me stuff that, oh, look at that guy on three sides. I don't give a fuck. I don't care. I'm glad you're hearing it. But guys, Lars Ulrich was right. The fans are killing this. If you're going to, you do you honestly think they're going to keep doing super cool deluxe box sets? when everything gets dumped online i mean if you were if you had a business and you were selling widgets and you had a really cool widget and it's the widget everybody wanted but right before all this time and money and effort and keep in mind everyone goes oh gene and paul gene guys you know how many people the, the designers and the people who write the the record, liner la- the record and, label and the record all the the hundreds distribution of warehouses yes all the hundreds of jobs that have nothing to do with gene and paul congratulations guys you put them all out of work happy now music is a product sorry if you don't like it that way go to your local coffee house and just listen to that go there walk in get your coffee and uh and, and just do that but guys these concerts and everything when they're dug up and they're produced and they're, and you know, and you want them on a box set, they're just not going to do that anymore. I mean, if you if, put it this way, if, if you were the boss, would, would you bother? If, so, if, if, so, if somebody took your product and gave it away for free, when they don't own the product, they didn't purchase the product. They have no rights to the product, but they've decided that your product it's their right to give it away. What would you do? What would you yeah. do? And again, it goes back to what I said. I'm happy that everybody gets to hear. I think it's awesome. That part of it's cool. But guess how many people are now not going to buy the Creatures box set? So how many, again, from the distributors to the people who work at the pressing plants, on and on and on, who are now going to lose revenue. It's, it's, it's simple math. It's simple, basic business. So while some of the knuckleheads can celebrate guys, again, Lars was right. You know, Napster was wrong. You should get paid for the work you produce. That's, that's just it. And, and again, people, I, I, you know, Oh yeah, you used to sell, but yeah, you know, I sold stuff that Kiss didn't bother to put out. It's a huge difference. And I would go tape shows because I wanted it as a fan. But guess what happened when Kiss started putting that stuff out themselves, the instant lives? No need to do it. I wanted all the shows that I was at just because I'm a Kiss fan. That's all. And they had the opportunity to put out that show. They chose not to. This is different. This this stuff, these these board tapes, and, and 
everything that was released on, on the creature stuff that was put up the last couple of days, that was stuff destined and still is, as far as I know, going to be on the box. Well, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe the, I, I personally think it's too far into it that they, they'll, they'll script. They but it they, might impact future releases. And, oh, and, hold, and, on, hold on. Hold on. Mike, let me stop you right there. It is impacting. I talked to the folks last night, people very, very close to this project because I were I helped with this project. I talked to them last night. Bye bye. Think they're going to care anymore? No. And, and, and don't, don't, think that it's just gene and paul sitting back and saying oh no we're not going to do this they're not the money people in these projects they're not the people putting up the money to create and produce that that would be universal who puts the money up who hires the people who who produces everything and they sit and look at bottom line spreadsheets every week and they make projections. And if a projection is, you know what, boy, you know, all these things that have been released over the last few weeks could potentially impact our bottom line revenue. Well, somebody's going to go, how much is your projection of revenue loss? We're project, and I'm just making this up. We're projecting a half a million dollar loss in sales because of this. Somebody's going to go, kill it. We, we, we can't, we, we could have done this if it was going to make $2 million, but now that it's only going to make a million and a half. No, put that money into Aerosmith, put that money into Def Leppard. We'll channel it into another project. Um, you know, it is literally just a product to the record label. It's a product that has a P&L, has an ROI, if you don't have any clue what that stuff is, maybe you should before you start distributing everything under the sun for free. Um, but it will impact future product decisions. It just will. And, and, and to Mark's point, hey, I think it's cool. You can listen to some of these creatures soundboard recordings. But at the same time, that's not going to look good for future product releases if they can't have faith that the material they're sourcing isn't going to be taken and given illegally away. illegally taken and given away was can i ask a question was some of this soundboard stuff in with all the video stuff no the soundboard stuff just happened the week that's we're recording this like no, I know, that's, that's a whole different thing that has nothing to do with the stuff that's been put out on video. It's but, a whole separate issue. Well, I, I, it, well, it's put it this way, Tommy. What what came out is all the shows that were destined. Now, keep in mind, um, as far as I know, um, the live stuff on the box was supposed to be a culmination of you know the best parts because well all those shows are out now um but some of those shows weren't complete yeah they weren't full shows yeah and i forget which one you know uh there was some clips and cuts so my my point is this what the box set um is supposed to be is the the best of 
the moments from those. You don't get me wrong; you're going to get a full show, full show plus. Um, but you know, there. If you listen, there's another thing too. But I'm just speaking strictly for me. I'd rather have a professionally produced version of this box set than a YouTube video of the audio. That somebody's ripped the MP3 from a YouTube Correct. video. Correct. Yep. Correct. Yep. Just, just is just, it's just who I am. And again, <laughs> I cannot say this enough. I'm not mad. I don't care. I have no skin in the game. But I am disappointed for my my fellow, not even my, I was going to say, because there are people all over the world who work in this, for the people who aren't going to get their payday. And that's the problem. Uh, you know, people go, oh, there's, you know, whatever. This is going to generate $5 million or $2 million. You get these pea brains that go, Gene takes, you know, the million and Paul takes it. No, Gene, Gene's got more no. and more. Gene's got so many millions. He doesn't need this. Well, again, he's not putting the money up to produce any of these projects. And not only that, like you said, Michael, it's, you know, it's the guy, the, the tape operator and the, and the guy who writes the, the duplicating house. Yes. And, you know, you it's know just jobs go into this to make the boxes, to make the booklets that, you know, from the art designer on down, think of the big picture, not your little narrow little, oh, I got to hear this on, on YouTube for free. Well, congratulations. You, you know, here's, here's the, one of the biggest things over the last few weeks that's really stuck with me is like, you're not fucking entitled to any of this stuff. There isn't a single KISS fan out there that is entitled to have soundboard recordings, pro shot videos. You have no entitlement to any of this. I don't give a crap if you've spent $100,000 of your own money buying KISS stuff. That doesn't buy you entitlement to be owed all of this stuff. And, and that's what really just drives me nuts is seeing some of these fans like they owe it to us. They owe if, 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 if Gene and Paul were sitting on this stuff and they didn't release it, well, they, they owe it to us to give it to us for free. Bull fucking shit. It's theirs. If you own it, you get to make the decision. And let's keep in mind real quick here. Just because KISS might have something in their vault doesn't mean they own what's in their vault. Perfect story. And I've shared this before. Back in the mid-80s, I got invited to go to KISS's office in Central Park, about 87. They weren't there, but, but um, this gentleman who was working with them at the time, Derek, um, gave me a tour. And one of the rooms he brought me into had this giant light table, which literally is what it sounds like. It's a big like kitchen table, but it's a giant light. It's used for looking at slides and negatives and stuff like that. And I kid you not, this table was probably four feet by four feet square. And it was probably eight inches deep, piled of slides throughout Kiss's career. And I was just like, I'm like, are these all KISS photos? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I go, KISS owns all these? He goes, 
No. No. These are photos taken of KISS. The photographer gives KISS the material. If KISS wants to use it, they then contact the photographer and say, slide, blah, 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 blah. What's the fee to use this? Or if the label wants it, the label says, KISS, can you send us a bunch of slides from 1979? Here's what we got. They go through, they pick out what they want, then they contact the photographer, and then they work out acquiring the rights to use it. You know, it's funny because what you just said is also true for someone like me. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. You know what this is? It's tape JR sent me. Yeah. His master. It's labeled Simmons on one side and Stanley on the other. This is it, man. This is his master tape. This is what he sent me. I don't know. I, I own the tape, but I don't have any. You don't own what's for. on the tape. Correct. It, so, Correct. so, There's so, a huge difference. And, and you know what? I don't have the right to go put that on fucking YouTube. You don't have the right to sell it to somebody. You no. don't have the right. You don't even have the right to give it to somebody. It really, y- you, and, and, and the point is kiss has photo vaults of all these photos. Photographers take photos send them to kiss kiss just sits on them organizes them puts them into a database if they need to use them or somebody a licensee wants to use them then you figure out what it's going to cost there's video the same way they'll appear on a talk show doesn't mean kiss owns the video rights to that recording of that talk show they just actually have it so if somebody says do you have a talk show from 1974? Why, yes, we do. Here it is. And here's the company that owns the copyrights to this video. Go figure out if you can afford to get it. Um, TV broadcasts, same way. It doesn't matter. Kiss is on there playing their own song. ABC owns the, the broadcast. So you got to get the rights for it. I mean, there's a we we know there's a lot of classic old kiss shows i mean here phantom phantom of the park or um kiss meets the phantom that was one kiss didn't own that hanna barbera and a production company owned it and they get to decide who gets to use it when for how much the paul lynn halloween special same way it's not kiss's property to just do what they want with All of these videos, even though they might have been in Kiss's possession, doesn't mean Kiss has the rights to do anything with them. It's just reference material to see if they want to acquire those rights down the road. So, yeah, I'm getting uh, pressure from upstairs here. So, we got to, Mark's got it. Mark's got it. Can I go? Can you get, can I please go back to my original question and, and please try to answer it? So the the audio is just it's more of a coincidence that it's coming out right now and really has no tie to the video stuff that's been coming out. Uh, that I, I'm on, I don't I don't know. the. OK, so you have no idea where either one of them are coming from, but it could be the same person, but it also could be someone different. Sure. Yeah. OK. Just and, 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 and the same issue that you have with audio, you have with video. We don't know if KISS was planning to use these video clips that got leaked to put together some other video project or somebody else 
was going to put together a KISS movie and wanted to use these video clips? We don't know, but you still have that same issue of now that it's all been leaked and it's out there for free, the person putting up the money for a project is going to go back and reevaluate their investment and go, am I going to make my money off of this now? What's the downside? Because a bunch of video has been released, a bunch of audio has been released. And, and you can joke all you want that, that that's stupid and doesn't make sense. That's business. I People. guess that that was all I, I the point I was trying to make is, yeah, it's 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 cool. For, it's, I shouldn't say it's cool, but I'm happy that people are happy they get to hear things they want to hear. But this at, at the cost of of other people who depend on this sort of material to feed their families, it's not you, good for them. Yeah, and and that's and that's who I align myself with is the is the working man is the person who's who's working in the music business because let's face it the music business is not a good business to be in right now it's tough not to like make money was, oh you know even, it's even incredible, though you're, incredible even though you're making a fair point there's still going to be a certain group of people who won't listen to a word you're saying because, they don't matter Fuck. no no they don't yeah. care they, they they're yeah. the ones that feel they're entitled and and my last comment on this will be if you think you're entitled and you deserve to listen to all of this Okay, awesome. Don't bitch six to 12 months from now when they don't do any more box sets. They don't do any more off the soundboards. Don't bitch that Kiss isn't releasing product now because guess what? You got it all for free. So you can't yeah, have it you're both crappy, ways. You're crappy, you know, MP3, you're crappy, you know, way this is now. Congratulations. Yep. I'm, All right. I'm, Liz, Liz, I just told him I have to go upstairs. Yeah, Liz, we got yelled at, Liz. We got yelled at. <laughs> um, Listen, when he says 15 minutes and it's been 30, luckily dinner just got done. So it's perfect timing. See? Right. So, so. Usually he says five minutes and it's two. <laughs> we, 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 we can see that we can see the hangries coming. Um, all right, so uh, this one, this this week's episode, <laughs> it's a little cheap trick. No, it's a little kiss. A lot cheap trick. There's a lot week. of kiss, though, too. There's a lot of kiss this week. Yes, definitely. We are joined by the author, Brian Cramp, who wrote a book that's coming out September 6th called This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick. And we do a lot of KISS Cheap Trick related crossover talk here. One of the cool things is we find out who caught their mom and dad rolling on the couch. Rolling numbers. Rolling numbers. If you're, if you're a Cheap Trick fan, you know what that reference is and you know why that's important to KISS fans. There's a lot of cool KISS Cheap Trick discussion this week. Um, so let it roll and we'll see you at the Yo. end. It's three sides of the coin, and we're here, and you can hire us to say something on video for you. But but before everybody like rolls their eyes and goes, what the hell am I hiring three sides for? We are donating 100% of the money we raise to charity, okay? So think about that when you want us to say something. We can do a birthday shout-out, an anniversary shout-out. Lisa can do like a Paul Stanley rap. Couldn't you, Lisa? Would you do that, please? 
I can sing Read My Body. I can do a Paul Stanley rap. Anything that you want to do, I'll do. Mark, well, not would, would, would you get up and go open something? No, but I'll say something funny. <laughs> I'll read a comment. Yeah, Tommy will. Re- you can send Tommy a comment and he'll read it. Now, seriously, you guys all know what Cameo is all about. We'll do a video shout out for any occasion saying anything you want. You know, I don't know if we've even got any limits. You could you could have us say something like three sides of the coin sucks and we'll do mm-hmm. that. Well, I mean, does, we're, we're really easy here. So head over to Cameo.com. Look for three sides of the coin. The four of us will get together and record a video message for you, donating all of our money to charity. Mm-hmm. Three sides of the coin. You know, sometimes we don't talk kiss. Actually, we get accused of not talking kiss quite a bit. Uh, but today's going to be heavy, cheap trick. I'm predicting, because we haven't done this yet, I'm predicting this is going to be 70% cheap trick, 30% kiss. I'm thinking that's the way we're going to go with this. Maybe even more cheap trick and less kiss. Today, we are joined by author Brian J. Cramp, author of the new book, This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick. Brian, it's cool of you to join us. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Michael. Hey, Mark. And um, you actually are one of the hosts of the 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 cheap trick podcast with ken mills aren't you yeah yeah it's kind of fallen by the wayside cheap talk yeah yeah we did it for a while we haven't done much haven't had very many episodes in recent years but you should god cheap trick is so fucking active i'm surprised i mean they're just not they're just not as nerdy as us (laughs) cheap tricks one of those bands you could sit and because they continue to release new music, they're gigging all the time. You, I would think you guys would have an endless supply of stuff to talk about, you know, plus they switch their setup. Well, I, I was, <laughs> was going to say, I mean, Cheap Trick has been around long enough, gone through enough lineup changes, doesn't have original member, all original members, has sound changes i mean it sort of parallels what kiss has gone through which makes for a plethora that's a big word like gymnasium of (laughs) a plethora of of stuff to debate um but i don't know maybe cheap trick fans just like i said aren't quite as i don't know geeky nerdy maybe cheap trick fans have lives (laughs) yeah mr mills is kind of has kind of semi-retired from podcasting it seems and then i was working on the book so you know we did an episode when the new album came out which i love the most recent cheap trick album in another world i think is great album so you know when something happens like that we do an episode well so fill us in what now you're you're from you you i don't know if you're from but you are living now in Wisconsin? Yeah. Waukesha? Yeah. So I live in Madison, but yeah, I grew up in Waukesha. I mean, so you grew up in the the heart of where Cheap Trick was born and raised. Yeah. And I went to UW Madison. Yeah. So 
Cheap Trick always kind of seemed like a local band, really, you know. So, so what, what, what drove you to write a book? That's a pretty big undertaking. I mean, we know there's guys out there that have been writing books for over seven years that aren't finished yet. <laughs> yeah, I actually pre-ordered that one. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry, man. You, you didn't listen to us when we said don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, I felt like I could do it. Um, you know, I studied creative writing and journalism in college, and I knew I could write. Um, I, I've been writing my whole life. I've tried to write screenplays and every, you know, everything else. And um, so, yeah, I just dove into it and, you know, it all worked out really well, actually. You know, it took a long time, but I, all on my own, I had some help, you know, there's a guy named Steven Roth who helped me hook me up with the publisher but actually got it published. And, um, you know, it's amazing that I just started from scratch, had never had a book published before. And now to get to this point, yeah, it's, um, well, it's kind of hard to believe. I mean, it is, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big achievement writing a book, getting, releasing it, but also getting it published through a publisher. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's a big challenge today for authors. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's been a lifelong dream for me just to be a published author. So hopefully that's just getting my foot in the door and it's just the start, you know. Um, yeah, but it's a kind of still surreal. You know, the book still doesn't come out until September 6th. So, um, so, so well, yeah, let's get into details because I'm curious, um, is this a like an oral history or is this a... Yeah, how did you approach this? How did you decide what you were how you were going to make this not that there's a million cheap trick books out there but there are other books mm -hmm. um about cheap trick um how did you approach this and and what did you do to try and be a bit different yeah well once i had enough once i started interviewing more and more people it just kind of snowballed to the point where i interviewed 80 90 people by the end and i had a lot of just great quotes from people and so I came up with this concept of kind of doing a mixture of oral history and prose, you know, so there's a lot of oral history in it, but also, you know, I was never able to talk to Rick, Robin or Tom, I tried. And so, but I did through tons of research, I have lots and lots of quotes from all three of those guys interspersed throughout the book from, you know, other interviews from over the decades, you know, even from very recent interviews, there's quotes in the book. Um, so I gathered a lot of quotes from the other guys that are all, you know, presented in context and help tell the story. And then Bunny Carlos was a big help, especially once I got a publisher. He answered every question I threw at him, <laughs> you know, as well as he could. And also their former manager, Ken Adamani, who managed the band from the very beginning all the way into the 90s, was a huge help. And um, he is ecstatic about how the book turned out. He loves it. And he helped me a great deal. He saved everything. So there's a lot of the stuff in the book is documented. I saw the actual, he has the dates, he has the old documents. Um, so Ken was a huge help. So that, and that was when the project really became much more of a serious endeavor was when Ken Adam, I, I never dreamed I would have a relationship with Ken Adam any, um, you know, he's the bill of coin of cheap sure. tricks. Yep. So yep. 
uh, one of the people I interviewed early on was Jim Charney, who worked for Epic Records at the time the band was signed. He's still friends with Ken to this day. He was friends with Ken in the 60s when he was in, when Jim Charney went to UW-Madison. So when he linked me up with Ken Adamani, just because he offered, he said, hey, I'm still in touch with Ken if you want to talk to Ken. That just blew my mind. And then the more Ken V, the more I developed a relationship with Ken, uh, the more he shared. He would just send me pictures. He's going through all this stuff in his garage. He would just send me a pic, a crazy picture of some old document, you know, and he just kept sharing stuff with me, even up until the very end. You know, I was still writing this book when it was sent to the printer. I mean, I, <laughs> when they already had sent it to the printer, I, I changed two pages. My editor told me, you can only change two pages and it has to fit within the two pages. It can't spill over to anything else. But I had a new contact, which was the daughter of Marshall Mintz, the photographer that the song Oh Candy is written about. Okay. Um, when I actually got in touch with her, I knew I had to get some information from her into the book and I managed to fit it onto those two pages. And that was when the book was already supposed to be locked. So, and there was a point where my editor said, you got to tell Ken, the book's done. Stop sending <laughs> you stuff. Yeah, because Ken would keep sending me stuff and then I would email my editor and be like, I have something else. And at, at one point he just said, no, no more. <laughs> Maybe it's time to do a book with Ken. Yeah, well, Ken is working on his own coffee table book because he literally has saved everything and ken was a huge promoter through the 60s and 70s so he not only managed cheap trick but he promoted every show that came through this area um so he was just you know i talk in the book about how ken was in a band with boz skaggs and steve miller <laughs> when they were in college um ken uh, you know he has an amazing story too in terms of rock history I mean, the night that Cheap Trick were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so was Steve Miller. And here's Ken Anime, he's sitting at home watching it on TV, you know, and he played such a major role in, in that history. But, you know. Let, 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 me, let me ask you, you mentioned in passing that Rick, Robin, and Tom weren't involved. You've got Ken and you've got Bunny involved. Um, you know, and anybody who is into cheap trick probably can go well you know there's a little it's it it's like the ace and peter versus gene and paul camp there's there's some camps going on there did that influence rick robin and tom because you were already involved with ken and bunny or did they just like we just want you to do this on your own without our assistance yeah i don't really know why they're so resistant i'm mean, you guys probably know doug broad's book they just seem a little weird that came out a couple yeah, of years. Yeah. yeah so doug tried to talk to them too and rick gave doug one hour and robin and tom just flatly refused and doug has much more of a resume than i have you know doug worked for i think spin magazine tv guy you know he has a long career so and they weren't interested in speaking with him either plus his book had a really interesting concept you know the the crossover between those four bands. So the fact that they wouldn't even talk to Doug Broad and Rick gave him one hour, you know, and then, I mean, and then, sorry, Doug said, you know, that he got an email later from Rick saying that, why is there so much more Ken in the book than me? Well, and Doug's like, well, he gave me one hour. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so. you know, there, there are some artists out there who don't want to be involved in 
projects like books mm-hmm. because they don't want to have quote the official influence in a book they want the book to be what it is written you know the honesty of a book where a lot of times i mean you know in the kiss world if gene and paul get involved all of a sudden you kind of know all right we may not be able to say certain things and talk about certain things and you know it's going to have to have an eye of approval over it some artists for the benefit of a book are just like i want to keep out of it so you can write the book you want to write and not be influenced and have to change because we are involved. I'm not saying they were like that, but yeah. for, for fans out there, just, you know, don't jump to a conclusion and say, oh, those three guys were just assholes and didn't no. know. But it's, it, you know, they, again, a lot of artists don't want to influence somebody's book, somebody's project from an official capacity because once it's a, once something official becomes involved in stuff, you know, it opens up a whole different world of reviews and approvals and lawyers and rights. And, you know, oh, maybe we don't want to say that to offend this person. And, oh, can you take this this page out because so-and-so doesn't like it? I mean, they they understand that that might happen. And, and maybe artists just want you to be able to write what you want to write. Sure. And they have no reason to talk to me. I don't, I don't hold anything against them for not i think they're you know cheap trick are very private and um yeah it seems like they're kind of private and they don't just they're not interested in that um my goal with the book was not to have anything in the book that would piss anybody off you know sure So i wasn't looking for anything i wasn't going to put anything in the book that he thought you know would they, they, they wouldn't like that was not anything I wanted to do anyways. Now, but, now the fact that you got Bunny and Ken, I mean, those are like massive historians. Mm-hmm. Cheap trick history right there. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if they don't know, odds are nobody's going to know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. Um, being that, because uh, I don't, I again, a huge Cheap Trick fan. I love them. Um, I don't know their you know, the deep personal history stuff is, is Zeno still around? See, or does he still, yeah. so were you able to reach out to him at all? Yeah. I talked to Zeno a number of times and um, Zeno has read the book now. He likes it. Yeah. It was important to me to tell a guy like Zeno's story, you know? Well, um, I, that was one of the things I was, I was going to ask you, you know, where does the book start? And I think it'd be a good idea because this is a kiss podcast. I'm sure a lot of fans are, love cheap trick but probably have no idea who Zeno is and mm-hmm. he's very important to the beginning of so maybe you could uh shed some light on that why yeah. he's important to the story and you know uh, take it from there yeah well you know Zeno went to high school with Robin Zander they were friends in high school they performed together even and um the story goes and I think it's true that um because Bunny Carlos played in a band with Robin Zander called Friends in like 1970, 71. It was just like a cover band. So Bunny was actually the guy who knew Robin. And when, you know, there's the whole long story of how they went out to Philadelphia. They had a band called Sick Man of Europe, which was Rick and Tom and Bunny were in that band with Stooky from the Nas singing. And they moved back to Rockford with Stooky, but almost immediately fired Stooky. And then Bunny said, well, there's this guy, Robin. He called Robin, but Robin had a contract 
because this was in June that they were forming. Robin had a contract to perform for the entire summer in the Wisconsin Dells. Um, his group was called Xander and Kent. It was a duo, him and this guy named Brian Beebe. So Robin wasn't available. And Robin said, you should talk to my friend Randy, who he, he sang in the choir with in high school. And I, you know, it's, it, it seems almost like a mythical story, but I think it's true. They, they wanted Robin. Robin wasn't available. Robin said, what about Randy? And uh, Randy, who Rick renamed Zeno, uh, came over and um, sang with them, and he joined the band. And he was in the band for like a year and a half. They were mostly a cover band. They really only had a couple originals while Zena was in the group. But, um, you know, they started just, they just played constantly. They they kind of started building their following. And so it came to a point where I think it's really interesting. You know, I made a timeline with everything to try to see where things matched up. And it's like, there was this article in the newspaper about Xander and Kent, Robin's group. And the next night was when Cheap Trick played at Uncle Sam's, which became First Avenue in Minneapolis. And this guy, Tom Murray, was at that show who was in a band called The Litter, who were kind of a, a legendary kind of psychedelic rock band in the Midwest. And Tom Murray was starting a new band called Straight Up. He saw Cheap Trick. He wanted Zeno as his singer. He was looking for a singer. He wanted Zeno. He went up to Rick Nielsen and said, man, I want your singer. And Rick was like, all right. <laughs> and that's because they were kind of... Zeno and the band were kind of drifting apart and you know Xander and Kent they had tried for like four or five years they'd gone to Europe they were tried to get a record deal themselves had it really worked out and it just kind of matched up that when Zeno was had this opportunity to join this other band Robin was available you know so that kind of just worked out and Xander and Kent had kind of run its course but yes, yeah, like I said, Zeno was in the band for like a year and a half. They were called Cheap Trick, played tons of shows. They had Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School was one of the songs they played, which ended up on the first album. But it seems like Rick really didn't, Rick Nielsen really didn't start writing Cheap Trick tongue songs until he had Robin. It's like he kind of, once he had Robin, I always say Rick uses Robin kind of as another instrument. Like he can... He, he realized at some point that he could write any crazy song he wanted because Robin could pull it off, no matter what style it was, no matter what, you know, if he wanted a sweet, soft voice or if he wanted just a screaming maniac and anything in between, he could. So you can really tell that it was when Robin joined the band that Rick just started writing songs like crazy. But, it's, it, 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 it really is like, that's when that writing partnership was discovered and cemented. And that, that is really what set cheap trick apart. I mean, not every band has that writing partnership that is so special, unique, deep. I mean, very few bands have two people that are, are just meshed so well and last for such a long time together. Mm -hmm. And right. I think Rick and Robin are a perfect example of that. Yeah, it was, you could just see by the way that everything panned out that Robin was kind of the secret ingredient that where everything just coalesced and really came together. And then that was, 
over the course of 75 and 76, they just became a monster band that everybody loved. You know, they were huge in the Midwest. Every single guy that was in another band, they all loved Cheap Trick. Everybody they came across, you know, they, everybody from the record labels liked them. Um, they, you know, they had Kim Fowley trying to get his hooks in them. They had Butch Stone, who managed Black Oak, Arkansas, tried to get him a record deal, paid for them to record them. Like everybody they, they came into contact with fell in love with them. You know, Jack Douglas and Tom Worman both still say it's their favorite band they ever worked with. It's like they just became this monster band that just blew everybody away. And it was because they the, all the guys have been playing in bands for more than 10 years by the time they broke through. And they were just a well-oiled well machine. Like when they recorded their first album, took no time at all. Like they were the most amazing band in the studio. You know, all the producers say they just come in, they knock it out. There's such a tight, you know, machine. And that was just from just playing constantly, just night after night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. They just played every night they could for years. And so they were, they just were the best at what they did. And also, like I say, they were Rick, the way Rick wrote songs back then, it's like he didn't have a care in the world. It was just fearless and reckless and crazy. And he just wrote whatever he wanted. They were weird. And, and a lot of them were very catchy, but a lot of them were just kind of weird and people loved it because it was so different and just kind of obnoxious and, you know, out there. I remember one of my favorite quotes was Brad Elvis, from, who was in the band, the Elvis Brothers. He was playing in bands at the same time as Cheap Trick in the Midwest. And he, he said, he talked about how they were really great at dynamics. And he said it would be this soft, soft melody. And then it would just turn into this, roaring white noise that's how he described it you know you see them in the clubs and they just kind of people were just in awe you know um real quick tommy can you hear us yeah i can sorry about that i got stuck i had to help someone with a one of my clients's cars broke down today and that put me behind so all right no problem well we've got brian here and um we're talking about his book this band has no past. How Cheap Trick became Cheap Trick. I love Cheap Trick. You do? You've never said yeah. that. They're mm -hmm. one of my favorites. <laughs> um, Brian, let's, you know, when we first started, you had mentioned um, Ken Adam and he was kind of the bill of coin of Cheap Trick. And, and, and again, if you're, a, if you're a Kiss fan and a Cheap Trick fan, you understand what that statement means. But can you get into that a little bit more? Was was Ken's um, involvement in the band the last piece of the puzzle that really needed to happen to take Cheap Trick from being, you know, a local Illinois Wisconsin bar band to an international band? Was Ken that secret ingredient? In ways, yeah, definitely. I mean, you you can tell how hard he worked to get them signed to get them a record deal. You know, Ken was a booking agent from even from the late fifties. I think he played. He had a band called the Night Trains. He got his start. He was a keyboardist, and he got his start playing in his own band. He started booking them, kind of managing them. Then he just started his own booking agency. So all through the sixties. 
he was a booking agent and one of the, he he booked gigs for i don't know if he ever booked any of robin anything robin did but he booked you know tom peterson a band called the bull weevils that ken booked and rick was in the grim reapers that became fuse ken ended up managing fuse and bunny's band the pagans you know the pagans had a single out ken adam and he put that out on his record label on a record label he created and he put out a fuse single you know before they got signed to epic so he tried his hand at record labels too he put out maybe 10 or 15 singles something like that from different bands um but at, at some point he just kind of threw everything at the cheap trick for a while because i guess he realized how great they were you know so when it came to the mid 70s kind of he devoted almost everything to cheap trick and yeah, he he had lots of different record label interest in them. One um, of the things I, I just think that the uh, our audience would find fascinating because Kiss was huge in Japan um, is the story, and I'm sure you could tell it a whole lot better than I could. Um, how Cheap Trick got so big in Japan? I've always found that a very fascinating story, and I believe it starts with them the, the Japanese magazines and something to do with Queen um what, yeah that can you what can you tell our again because of there was such a kiss tie in there that you know kiss conquering heroes in 77 and sh you know a year later budokan geez oh man you know in 78 was just a monster so i was wondering if you could uh, share that very cool cheap trick story and how they came to be so big in japan yeah, well, that's a story that Rick tells is they opened these two shows for Queen in Milwaukee and Madison. Um, I think it was in December of 76. So they recorded the album in September and October, but it didn't come out until like February of 77. So they had already recorded the album, but it hadn't come out yet when they opened those two shows for Queen. And that was because Thin Lizzy were the, supposed to be opening that leg of the tour, but um brian robertson the guitar player had gotten into a fight <laughs> and uh i think uh cut his hand really bad on a broken bottle or something so that was why thin lizzie weren't there they ended up getting gary moore to do the tour but they they missed some of the shows and so cheap ken anime got them on that bill on those two shows because he knew the guy who was promoting the gigs randy randy mcelrath i think and he so yeah, they, they had a record deal, but it wasn't out yet. So nobody knew who they were. I mean, people knew they were in Madison and Milwaukee, but uh, Queen didn't, you know, Queen didn't know anything about them, even though uh, Ira Robbins talked to Brian May about it, which I have in my book that Brian May said, he's sure they would have had to okay it, that Cheap Chick opened. So they must have heard an advanced copy of the album or something, but he doesn't really remember, you know, but he figures they would have had to okay it. But yeah, they opened those two shows and the Japanese press was there because they were covering Queen. And then they loved Cheap Trick. So that's when they first started getting covered by the Japanese press. And then when they did the Kiss tour, the Japanese press were there for that too. That was in the summer of 77. So those are the two things I think they point to that led to it. Really, the, the, the Japanese press really kind of latching out to Cheap Trick and falling in love with them. It started with the Queen connection and got bigger with the Kiss connection. 
I just found that amazing that an American band, which has happened many times, you know, Tom Petty's another great example, had to go to another country to find huge success. And Cheap Trick was certainly, you know, because a lot of people always joke with, you know, we're big in Japan, you know what I mean? But that truly was the case um, with with them. And it was funny because there was a band from Windsor, Ontario called Tease um, in, in Mm -hmm. in the mid 70s. They had a live album out from Japan. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how starved the, the folks over there were for, for lack of a better word, North American rock and roll. I mean, so, I mean, it was just amazing that a band that you could literally go see in a club here right around that time was playing the famed Budokan. I mean, that's unheard of. That's happened you know. to so many. You know, sex bombs on the charts in Japan, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you, 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 got, you got you got to speak up a little bit louder, Tommy. Yeah, you're, Tommy. You're... No, I just said I said that's happened to more bands than you can count. I mean, look at you know, sex bombs on charts in Japan. That's you know, <laughs> what they go somewhere else. Um, yeah, well, uh, Ken Animan, he told me that there was a Japanese promoter who just started calling around trying to figure out how to book Cheap Trick because he knew how popular they were over there. They had hit singles and he knew Cheap Trick weren't even aware that they could go to Japan and have huge crowds, but this Japanese promoter knew. So he was the one who called around and ended up getting in touch with their agency and saying, you got to come over here because you're, you're big. You're going to have big crowds, you know? Brian, you, 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 you touched on um, Cheap Trick opening for Kiss, which you know, Kiss has a history of taking out incredible opening acts, you know, from from day one and some acts that have gone on to be huge. I mean, people like Bon Jovi and ACDC and, and many other bands at one time open. But at least within the Kiss world, I think it's safe to say Cheap Trick connected with the kiss audience more than any other opening band ever did and more importantly has lasted a lifetime with kiss fans of boy you know wouldn't it be great to see cheap trick open for kiss one more time wouldn't that be your dream tour man if i could have gone back and seen cheap trick opening for kiss you know i mean and again they've had They've had Sticks and they've had Ted Nugent and Bob Seger and ACDC, especially back in the 70s. Bands that weren't huge yet, but were on the cusp of exploding. But for whatever reason, Cheap Trick is the one that really connected with Kiss fans. And I'm not looking for a definitive answer. This is probably more of a discussion for the four of us. But what is it about Cheap Trick that connected so well and so deeply with Kiss fans that no other band was ever really able to do? I think it had to be the music. It had to come down to the songs. I I think because you have to think about Cheap Trick walking out on stage in front of a Kiss crowd and the way Cheap Trick looked, on the one hand, it was funny and it was interesting, but I could see the Kiss crowd booing them off the stage at the same time at that time, you know, because the way they looked was pretty 
ridiculous, you know? I mean, when Rick Nielsen and Buddy Carlos come out, I mean, a lot of the crowd were probably laughing. People who weren't aware of the band. Oh, but, no, you know, I, I remember as a kid, like the first time I saw, saw Bunny in concert, and I think it probably would have been the Dream Police tour where I first saw Cheap Trick. I was like, dude, that could be my dad on the drums. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's just literally somebody's dad is playing drums. That's not a rock star. And, you know, no offense to Bunny, but that was that was what was cool about Cheap Trick at the same time is, and we know Cheap Trick played this up, you got the two good looking guys and you got these two other guys who are like, what the hell's up with Bunny and Rick? I mean, they're not sex symbols, no matter how hard you try and stretch it. Yeah, I would guess that they probably had to win the crowd over, you know, from the first impression. But the songs and the comedy, you know, I mean, when Bunny's got the giant drumsticks out and when Rick's doing all his wacky stuff, I, I think it's, I think, you could understand how they did really did win the kiss crowds over with the great songs and they were just fun. They were a fun band. They, they, they had a bit of a stage show, not yeah. uh, of course, not at the level of kiss, but to your point, I mean, bunny and giant drumsticks and God, every, every, everything that Rick does on stage is a bit of a yeah. show. Hey, that's a question I'd like to ask someone like yourself. I don't know the origins of because I have the Fuse record and Rick looks really bizarre in a way at receding hairline and everything as a young man and everything. But was there a because I don't know the story, maybe you can that's what I'm asking. How did he transform into the, you know, almost mm-hmm. the Bowery boy look? Do you do you know the answer to that or can you shed some light on that? <coughs> Yeah, it was kind of a gradual piece by piece thing, you know, and the hat was the last part. He was wearing the sweaters and the bow ties and everything before he was wearing a ball cap. And, you know, the story in the book, which I think is believable, uh, Brad Elvis, I mentioned earlier, he tells the story of being at a show in July of 76 when someone threw a hat on stage and Rick put it on. And then Brad, because Brad would go see them every time. And that was at, that was in at a show in Rockford at Flight of the Phoenix, and he said the next show, Rick was wearing the hat, and he just kept wearing a hat, you know, and he had already been wearing the cardigans and the bow ties and everything before that. And if you look at the pictures, there's no picture of him wearing a hat before July of '76. There's pictures of him wearing the sweaters and the bow ties, but no hat. And it really does complement or complete the look that yeah. the hat really does. There's it, even it, a show, there's a show they opened for Peter Frampton in August of 76 um, at the Summerfest grounds in Milwaukee. And Rick, there's pictures of Rick with a hat and without a hat. So he played part of the show without the hat. It's 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 almost like Rick realized with you know the thin receding hairline, yeah. he doesn't have the 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 Robin Zander rock star look that instead of trying to fight it, like some rock stars will do, he just accepted it and became what he really is. It's like, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to look nerdy and not like a rock star, I'm going to, I'm going to play into it. I'm going to just get totally into this and, and make it who I am. It, It almost feels that that's, you know, that's Rick saying, yeah, I'm proud of this. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to 
get hair transplants. I'm not going to put a wig on. I'm not going to try and dye my hair. I'm not going to try and be what, you know, a record label wants a rock star to look like because he's not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the hat was probably an epiphany and it was a brilliant addition to his look and it it served the purpose like you're saying <laughs> which um covering up you know whatever he needed to cover up but it also really added so much to his character and it became and, um, his costume as much as yeah. kiss has costumes yes yes that rick, was getting it. rick clearly has costume elements throughout yeah. everything and 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 once he really got into it boy he could have fun with it it's like you know a million different guitars a million different sweaters changing hats and you know when he had the long goatee and he'd tie the price tag to the bottom of it and you know i mean he really could get into it where it's almost like every show you don't know exactly what rick is going to look like you know he's going to be crazy and wacky but you don't quite know if something new is going to show up yeah yeah there's plenty of of reviews of early cheap trick before he had his look where he was already acting crazy on stage and you know just being he was always wild on stage um he just kind of needed to figure out a look that matched with this kind of wackiness you know but he always was weird on stage um he had the spicoli shoes before spicoli (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um, one of the things, and you know, and I don't want you to give away everything that's in your book because it's filled with stories, but one of them that I would love to have you talk about that is very much kiss related. And, and this is something that's on, on the Amazon page is who caught their mom and dad rolling on the couch, <laughs> you know, and, and, and to kiss fans, you know, that was back to why cheap trick is so endeared to kiss fans i can tell you at least for me you know mentioning kiss in a cheap trick song i love that as a as a young kiss fan i was like that that respect to you for just even mentioning kiss in your song i am now a fan because you kind of paid respect to them and you know so Tell us about the story about that song. Well, so the story comes from Hank Ransom, who, you know, there was a time in the early 70s when the guys all moved to Philadelphia and they worked at this club called Artemis. Um, uh, Rick and Tom worked at the club and Bunny kind of DJed there sometimes and they had a band. But before Bunny moved out to Philly, they uh, this guy, Hank Ransom, who was in a band called Good God, who had a record on in Atlanta, he was playing drums with them. For a while so when it what happened was uh in june of 76 bunny tripped and fell after a show at a club and broke his arm and they were looking for somebody to for to fill in for him for a while and they ended up bringing hank ransom out from philadelphia and so hank was there when surrender got written well he was there when it got finished i i, I have a recording of the band playing the song in may of 76 um with you can't even understand what the lyrics are at the end, but there's another version of the song where he says, um, he talks about mom and dad on the couch, but it's much more obscene. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, Hank, Hank told me that surrender was about his daughter, Heather. 
he told me that that was Heather's song. That's how Hank described it. So I asked Bunny about that. And Bunny said, you know, yeah, I remember when we were out in Philly one time, Heather caught her parents doing the deed. And then when we were, when Hank was with us, playing with us in Rockford at 76, we were all laughing about that story. And then Rick put it in the song. That's how Bunny remembered it. I mean, it immortalized. I mean, that, that, that's just a classic line amongst the best classic rock songs that are out there. Yeah. And I talked to Heather Ransom and she told me there's, I love the quote from her in the book about that song. And she says, I don't necessarily remember it. Cause she would have been very young. I don't necessarily remember walking in on my parents throw on the couch, but she did talk about how she had, does feel really connected to that song because her parents were weird. She was the kid with weird parents, you know, and uh, her parents had a bunch of weird friends and all the other kids at school would would make fun of her weird parents and their weird friends, you know, because they were all people in bands. So, so so the the was was the kiss reference just added by the band when they were finalizing the song as sort of a tribute or a thank you to kiss? Yeah, there was or or did they just go well, gee, if it's weird parents, let's pick the weirdest band out there that we can think of right now. And Kiss is, you know, in the mid-70s is about as weird as you can get for bands. Well, you know, are you guys, do you guys know what Rick's Picks was? There was a museum yes. exhibit, yeah, like 10 years ago in Rockford. And I went to that, this was before I even knew I was going to write a book. I went to that exhibit and I took pictures of everything. Just took pictures of everything that was there. Um, and that ended up coming in really handy once I was working on the book. And one thing Rick had, there was a lot of handwritten lyrics. And in one of my pictures, there's this little like torn off piece of a manila envelope. And it says, you could see that it says, got my queen records out. And then queen is crossed out and kiss is written there. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Which um, kiss was a, obviously a much better choice <laughs> well yeah i mean if you know i I'm not saying that queen wasn't big in the 70s because obviously were but you know i think kiss was is a better match for cheap trick uh, you know it it just worked out perfect let's yeah. just put it that way yeah yeah and um you know there's a great story of how when cheap trick played max's kansas city when they were in new york recording the first album gene and paul were there and, um, you know, the, the story that Rick tells is that Gene handed him either a $20 bill or a $100 bill. Because, you know, Mexico City had these long tables and Rick was walking out on the tables in front of the people. And Gene handed him the money and then Rick acted like he ate it. <laughs> put it as well. And then uh, so but um, Jolly, who was a roadie for Cheap Trick, he ended up going to work for Kiss. I, I think that's how the, what they say was like. The first time that Kiss got an inkling about Cheap Trick was when Jolly went to work for them and he would wear his Cheap Trick shirt. And, you know, that Cheap Trick logo is so cool. It's going to attract the attention of somebody like Gene Simmons. I mean, I think he could see because those old those original Cheap Trick shirts, those black shirts with that white logo was so striking and cool. And I think, you know, Gene Simmons just was like, what is that shirt? You know, and that was the I, you know, they say that was his first kind of inkling that there was something going on with this band cheap trick was when 
Jolly, their former roadie, was working for Kiss and wearing that shirt. So they were, they kind of, and then the, it's, I know Ken Adamant was inviting a bunch of industry people and stuff to that Max's Kansas City show. And somehow Gene and Paul ended up there. And maybe it was because of Jolly and that shirt. And they wanted to check out this band. And then they loved them, you know. Because like I said, everybody, all the guys in bands, every, everybody who's in a band pretty much loves Cheap Trick. From the yeah. 70s, 80s, 90s, everybody, <laughs> you know. Hey, speaking of weird stuff, I was wondering if maybe you found this out. I love 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 loved their um early covers that lou reed yeah. cover wait and it was cool because tom sang that which was you know unusual at the time and i love mrs henry that uh, what a, yeah. a great great tune any stories on on why tom chose that one and you know was it to give robin a break or what you have a story uh, is there anything related to why uh, those two songs uh, ended up in their you know those are pretty early classics if you're they're cheap trick bootleg collectors it's great having copies of them and i think the versions on uh is it the whiskey a go-go those mm -hmm. those are just oh my god those are just incredible so uh yeah. anyways anything any light you can shine on those songs i don't know as far as uh waiting for the man i think it's just a song tom could sing he doesn't have a lot of range <laughs> it's something he could do well and uh they were big fans of velvet underground and lou reed yeah, Please Mrs. Henry is a great, They yeah, they were so great at covers. You know, Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace, of course, is just a brilliant cover song. Um, that They covered tons and tons of songs in the early years. Um, one really cool story about a cover they did is this song, Dealer, Dealer, which was a Manford Man song. But it's weird because it takes the music from one Manford Man song called Prayer, but uses the lyrics from another Manford Man song called Dealer. And I had thought for a while that must have, Rick must have come up with that. But then Bunny told me the story that they saw in Philadelphia, they saw Manford Mann's Earth Band, I think, do that, do that song, where they took the music from one of their songs and the lyrics from another, and they played it live. It was never released. But the guys saw them play it live, and Bunny recorded it, because Bunny was always recording everything. So they had a recording of the band doing this weird mashup of two of their songs. And then Cheap Trick made it their own song, which is one of the covers that really stayed in their set for a long time. And, um, you know, so here they're covering a song that the only people who know what it is is people who saw the band live for whatever limited amount of time they actually performed that version, you know? Did you, I, I, I want to focus a little bit on the, tour cheap trick opening for kiss did did ken or bunny enlighten you with any like eye-opening memories or stories or recollections of cheap trick being out on the kiss tour no not really <coughs> um yeah there's not there weren't any like great stories that they had you know there's like um eddie kramer seeing them sound check and falling in love with the band and Ken gave him tapes and Eddie Kramer talked about how he wanted to produce cheap trick, but you know, of course it never happened, but you know, that's another great example of seems like everybody who saw cheap trick loved them, you know? So when Eddie Kramer saw them sound check, he became a huge fan. Bunny tells another story about how Eddie Kramer came, uh, 
saw them at in Chicago too and came up to them and said, I got to produce your record. I got to produce your record, you know, but seems like Eddie Kramer didn't do, he only produced one or two records a year. It seems like it's, he wasn't a very prolific producer, you know? So, um, I, I, so I don't know why that, you know, cheap trick with their schedule was always pretty rushed because they were always trying to get the albums done in between tours and, well, you well, know, wasn't that, it that... fact that, uh, that the live record success kept kept Dream Police yeah. on hold for? Because when I saw Cheap Trick open for Kiss at the Silverdome in '79, I distinctly remember, um, you know, Tom did "You Know What I Want," which wasn't out yet, and I remember when I finally when when Dream Police came on, and, and it's funny because a lot of people, a lot of Cheap Trick fans, bitch, because that's still in the set now. I love that song. I actually look forward to to uh, to that song. But it was cool because I'm like, hey, I remember when I when I you know when I got that. It was it was, it was funny too because that and uh, need your love, you know, which was obviously on the live record. It was kind of cool to get that mm-hmm. in reverse. You got the the studio version after you already knew the live version. But mm-hmm. yeah, so when 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 was Dream Police officially finished? Because it wasn't out by, uh, you know, again, they kept it waiting because the the, the live record was cr- cresting so high. Yeah, it was finished by the end of 78, I think. They started that's recording what, that's, that's it in done. October. Yeah, they had it They had it done by the end of 78. And Budokan wasn't released in the U.S. until, I think, February 79. So then when Budokan hit, it's like we just got to keep selling Budokan. We don't want to put Dream Police out and have them competing. So, yeah, they just sat there. You know, I don't know. It was less than a year, I think. But, you know, and it makes sense. They just, they kind of just let Budokan sell as much as it was going to before they put Well, Bu- Budokan, I mean, back then, Budokan is what basically established Cheap Trick yeah. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, yeah, well, you know, I can't imagine the band management or the labels wants to pull the plug on Budokan to release a new album when Budokan is literally establishing Cheap Trick as a headline act in the U.S. And, and, and also piggybacking on that, um, what do you know? Is there any kind of cool story behind the fact that Cheap Trick was one of the first bands, 70s bands, to really embrace video? That there's mm-hmm. that great promo video from from Dream Police. I mean, that wasn't something that a lot of bands did. Is there any uh, any interesting things about that? Yeah, they made videos from the first album. No, no, had, I get that, but I mean, yeah. that one was really, you know, that was pretty extensive. That one was like, we've got some success now. We've got some money. We're going to, you know, that was it's a pretty big production. The the Dream Police promo video. Yeah, it the the album cover is so cool. They had so much to work with. They had so much cool imagery to work with. So they were a perfect band for for video, you know. And especially the Dream Police era. That was kind of their biggest, you know, that was kind of their biggest presentation with that album cover and everything that went along with it. So when they had like the lineup and the gatefold and you know, they just kind of t- turned, took the Drew Police album cover and brought it to life, you know. And uh, they had a lot to work with there. 
I, my book kind of stops at, at Budokan coming out. So I actually didn't ask about those video productions. I, I write about the, the videos for the, from the first album, but that would be an interesting thing for me to ask Ken and Bunny about is those, the making of those Dream Police videos. Well, yeah. I, and that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I did not know that. So your book stops at Budokan? Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah, it's so. kind of like a cliffhanger. <laughs> well, it, it allows you to write a sequel. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say, because it would be really interesting, especially from Bunny and Ken's perspective, to dig into, I don't know the best way to phrase it, the missteps, the many missteps that happened for Cheap Trick throughout the 80s. Yeah. You know, you know, we, uh, you know, I distinctly remember, you know, Budokan or not Budokan, the Dream Police tour, seeing them um, headline massive crowds and each tour after that got mm -hmm. worse and worse well, and worse. What was started that? Out started out with the lawsuit over All Shook Up with, the, with mm -hmm. Epic and shit went downhill after that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean. Not unless unless you've got your own personal insights you want to share, but yeah, what what all of a sudden went on where Cheap Trick felt like let's piss off our record label, and you know why why was that a decision somebody thought was smart? And then what happened throughout all of the eighties of you know we know Tom left and and you know replacements came in and. And they became the band that always had the soundtrack, a song on a soundtrack. And, you know, and then it kind of, it, it peaks, whether it's good or bad, depending on what you think as a fan, with the flame coming out where everybody's like, holy crap. I mean, it's a huge song for them, but this ain't cheap trick anymore. What the hell? You know, so that's one of the things I guess what I'm trying to get at is I admire a lot about cheap trick is they've, they, they have been on a roller coaster ride from day one in the sense of careers at the top and career is way at the bottom, but through all of that, they never stopped. The mm -hmm. band never broke up. The band kept recording. The band kept touring the band would play anywhere to anybody who'd want to see them, you know, to the point where I remember seeing them opening for Poison and Def Leppard going, how the hell does a band like Cheap Trick open for two bands that were clearly influenced by Cheap Trick? Yet to Cheap Trick's credit, they just want to get out there and play. I mean, there are so many bands that would have thrown the towel in through all of the crap that cheap trick had to go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, they didn't have a plan B. They made this their career. And if you can make a living opening for Poison, it's a lot better than working in a warehouse like I do, right? Or yeah, or, <laughs> so. or, or even, you know, you, you, can, you can make money opening for Poison at a big shed or you can play to 150 people at a bar. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I always, I always get annoyed because I live in the Midwest and one of the great things about the summer was always getting to go see cheap trick at the County fairs and whatever. And then I always would get annoyed if they jumped on some tour all summer. Cause now they're going to be gone. But when they go on a tour, 
you know, they're just along for the ride. They don't have to do all the logistics. They don't have to. So if they go on tour, like they have just been with Rod Stewart, they let Rod Stewart's people do all the work and they just go out there and play and get paid, you know, and they love playing and this is how they make their living. And so, yeah, they just, they just are, they're just a working band. They've always just been a working band and that this is how they make their living and they're hey, great at it and they enjoy it. So, but before, uh, you know, before we, we wrap up here, I was just wondering because cheap trick, you know, you just mentioned Rod Stewart. Did they mention or did Buddy mention any bands that they either a loved playing with and were treated well by? Cause I also see this post sometimes too yeah, on Facebook mm-hmm. um, or any bands that he didn't like touring with or any artists he didn't like and the reasons if, if so for for the good and the bad any any bands their contemporaries because they did a ton of tours with a ton of different bands um did you hear any stories yeah the, the funniest one is probably the short tour they did with bebop deluxe you guys know that band yes i i like i have the bebop deluxe records and i like them but that tour did not go well the bands did not get along and bebop deluxe were pulling all the tricks of unplugging stuff house lights coming on in the middle of their set you know cheap tricks road crew uh plastered the, the uh windshield of bebop deluxe's station wagon with cheap tricks stickers and then just left them and uh they ended up you know the last show of the tour like all the record company people were there trying to um because the bands were fighting so bad and uh i think cheap trick just cut their set short because when they went up on stage, all their amps were unplugged and the house lights came on and it was that like their road crews were at war with each other. And yeah, this was, it was just like a 10, 12 date tour or something, but it was contentious the entire time. And it, it seems like it was because Cheap Trick were blowing them off the stage. And so Bebop Deluxe or their crew were trying to sabotage them, which, you know, is a common story you hear a lot where you know, there's also a quote in my book about how Rick Nielsen talks about how when they opened for Rush, there was just one guy out of the crowd who just flipped him the bird the entire show, <laughs> you know. And then Buddy was like, yeah, we got that a lot from Rush fans because they did play a lot with Rush, you know, in, in the, like 76, 77. So that's the weird thing about Cheap Trick is they went on on these tours. Like they did a tour with Kansas, like right before they went to it's, Japan. It's like they're never afraid of who they're going to play with. Yeah. It doesn't all they care about is being on stage and rocking. That's it. That's what matters to Cheap Trick. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cheap Trick opening for Kansas in 1977 doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. They were on the same label, I think. Uh, Kansas were on Epic, right? But yeah. And they, maybe it was the same management, but, you know, Cheap Trick in Kansas. I don't see yeah. a whole lot One of crock. Very proggy. And yeah, but, other, but, yeah. but, but to, to that point, because I was looking through some of my old shows and i think it was the cheap trick um not all shook up might have been the one-on-one tour and tommy you might remember but i remember cheap trick coming through minneapolis where where i grew up and they were still headlining although the arenas were more and more empty cheap trick had saxon and crocus opening mm-hmm. for them now i loved it because i discovered those bands because of cheap trick in the very early 80s but looking back you're like the hell? 
what booking agent thought Saxon and Crocus <laughs> opening for Cheap Trick? I think I might have saw um, Michael Shanker group open for Cheap Trick at one point in time. I mean, back in the early 80s, it felt like to me Saxon, MSG and Crocus were the three bands that were just opening for anybody anywhere. But to your 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 point, Brian, that was just a weird bill. It's like Cheap Trick has got two metal bands opening for them. And Cheap Trick is not not metal, not at yeah. all. Um, <coughs> they weren't afraid. They didn't care. Yeah. One funny uh, because those those bands were available and they were on the same touring cycle as Cheap Trick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. There's a lot of that that goes into it. Yeah. But uh, to to your point, Cheap Trick opening for Kansas. Yeah. I, and I'm not going to say this is exclusive to Cheap Trick because I sure if I went through my ticket stubs, I'd find a lot of shows in the early part of the '80s where you it's you know it was a three band headliner, two openers. Looking at it now, I'd be going, who put those openers on with that band? I mean, I think I might have saw, maybe I saw, no, you know what? I saw a Michael Shanker group open for Molly Hatchet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, again, it's an, it's an odd bill when you really think about it. <laughs> yeah, There's a lot of odd bills being put together back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Yeah, I think the early 80s were just a weird time where people were trying to figure out where like heavy metal and hard rock and new wave and everything fit together. And, you know, it it was just kind of, an, I, you know, I mean, we saw the struggles that Kiss had trying to figure out what direction they were going to go in before yep. they ended up yep. going the heavy metal route, you know. And uh, yeah, part, it's hard. part of me now, it misses. I'd love to go back to have those three band odd bills of of openers, because, again, I mean, that's how I discovered the Michael Shanker group. It's how I discovered Saxon. That's how I discovered Crocus. I mean, I, I had read about them in a magazine like Kerrang, but I didn't get sold on them until it's like, oh, wait a second. You mean Saxon's going to be opening the cheap trick show? Cool. I want to see what these guys are like. Yeah, I, we don't have that nowadays. But we talked about that with Larry Mazur, too. You know, how, the, how things changed in the mid-80s, because up until then, in the 60s and 70s, you'd see that kind of a bill where it made no sense at all. Like, kiss opening for Manfred Mann. That, to me, that's bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know. It was uh, a... Aerosmith with, with Mahavishnu Orchestra, you know. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> Sick Man of Europe, the pre-cheap trick band, opened for Mahavishnu Orchestra, and they got a horrible, scathing review, which is they say is one of the reasons they fired Stuky, the singer, was because of that horrible review they got when they opened for Mahavishnu Orchestra. But also, Rick Nielsen and Bunny Carlos loved th- that band. So, you know, I was going to say there's this funny story that Paul Taylor, who was in, who's in Winger, told me okay. he was playing with Aldo Nova. At the time, and Saxon were on that tour was Aldo Nova, Cheap Trick, and Saxon. And there was one show where Saxon's drummer was sick or something, and Bunny Carlos was going to play with Saxon. And Paul Taylor said all the guys in the band were, they were there. They're like, we got to see this. But then the Saxon drummer ended up pulling through or something and playing the show. But it was was close to Bunny Carlos playing drums with Saxon, which would have been a pretty great <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Brian, where can people um, pre-order your book? Where, where, where do you want to send people to to get more information and details? You know, you could pre-order on Amazon, but you can even pre-order it from Target's website, Walmart's website, Barnes & Noble. Um, there's, it's all, there's a lot of places you could pre-order it, and it actually comes out on September 6th. So, I'm not sure how good the distribution is going to be or what kind of stores it's going to be in. I'm not really, I'm waiting to see how that plays out, but. Um, so, so go, go look for this band has no past how cheap trick became cheap trick by Brian cramp K R A M P. If you're going to do a Google search for it. Um, if you're a, I mean, obviously if you're a cheap trick fan, you want to check this out, but I mean, I, I would venture to say if you're just a, a seventies classic rock fan, this is going to be right up your alley. Yeah, it's really the story of what, of how hard these guys worked to make it, you know, just playing night after night. It almost becomes a day by day story at some point because I have so many of the dates they played and um, you just see how hard they worked and, and how, how, how they had, how, what it took to get a record deal. And then, and then, um, you know, how they built from there. But I think it's a fascinating story of what, what if a band just worked hard enough and were good enough in the seventies, you know, of where they could take it. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have always said cheap trick in my mind is one of the absolute hardest working rock bands out there. They just live to play live they don't care where, they don't care who they're playing with, and they haven't stopped recording. I mean, yeah. you know, hats off to Cheap Trick. I wish, I wish our boys in Kiss would take a lesson from Cheap Trick. Yeah. I mean, Cheap Trick loves to record new music. I'm sure they're not making boatloads of money off of the new music they sell, but they're doing it because they are a freaking rock band that loves to do it. And there's not a lot of rock bands that have that sort of ethic work ethic that cheap trick has. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They there's their last album, you know, there's a couple of songs in there that I love just as much as almost any other cheap trick song, which is pretty amazing that that deep into their career, they're still putting out classic cheap trick songs. Yep. Yeah. So. They're not trying to reinvent it, it, it's not like any longer you're going to get, a, you know, the flame 2.0 out of Cheap Trick. They've, I think they've realized we're going to be Cheap Trick and we're going to do what we want to do. And we're not recording for the sake of having a hit. Yeah. And you could tell they love what they do. You oh, know? Yeah. And they were just meant to do it. And they're just as good as anybody could be at what they do. They're masters of it. And they, they really enjoy it. They, they're, they they're, they're a lesson for any band out there on how to play a different set list every single night mm -hmm. on tour. Yeah. And the fact that they know these, they know their entire catalog to be able to pull that off. Again, more credit to them. Um, mm -hmm. Brian, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank um, you, guys. It, you know, nothing better. If we're not going to talk Kiss, we're going to talk Cheap Trick. <laughs> right i mean for me it's bands one and two for me that's what it comes down to yeah yeah but um everybody go look for 
This band has no past. How Cheap Trick became Cheap Trick coming out September 6th. You can get it on Amazon and anywhere you might look for and order your books. Do you have something to say? Leave a voicemail or send us a text message. Call 320-515-4771. Guys, nothing better than talking Kiss and Cheap Trick. And, yeah, that and, was fun. And, 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 you know, and, and, you know, Mark, as you always say, timeline is everything. But how cool was it growing up in the mid late seventies, early eighties, when you had cheap trick and kiss exploding. Amen. I mean, Amen. I mean, the know. three of us, you know, that's the funny part. Cause I say this too, a lot with my band because we're all such different people, but there's those core bands and those core things with us. It's definitely cheap trick. The three of us are all huge cheap trick fans. And, you know, that's that's really the glue in some ways other than Kiss that holds this podcast together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I haven't kept track of how many times I've seen all the many bands I've seen. But I would guess if I removed all of the Kiss shows I went to because I was working with them, I've probably seen Cheap Trick more than I've seen Kiss as just a fan going to shows. Because I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's because Cheap Trick wasn't always doing arena tours. Sometimes you could go see them at a local club or a theater. A little easier to go find them when they were touring more often. But and they felt like a local band. Yeah, yeah. And, and God, I don't know. When did they start mixing the set list up? But it got to the point where it's like, you, you truly didn't know what set list and what songs you were going to hear going into a Cheap Trick show. And you would walk out sometimes going, oh, my God, they played that. I mean, I remember seeing them 20 years ago, south of San Francisco. And they they did Gonna Raise Hell, and they hadn't been doing that a lot. And I nearly shit my pants because they did the long, extended Gonna Raise Hell live. And I was just... And that that is one of my absolute favorite cheap trick songs. Love it. Love that song. Um, but that that that's the beautiful thing about cheap trick, especially if you follow them on Facebook. I mean, they post their set lists the day after every show. It's fun watching just how that set list changes from night to night. And it's not just one song changing. Sometimes the whole freaking set list changes for cheap trick. Right. Yeah, that's why I said that'd be a fun podcast if you were a podcaster. I mean, God, the set's changing constantly. They're on tour constantly. They're putting new records out constantly. God, there'd be never anything to not talk. There'd always be something to talk about. Well, I mean, there's plenty of controversial stuff in, in Cheap Tricks world like there is in Kiss. I mean, whether you like it or not, you know, Bunny not being in the band. Ken Adamani, who was their bill of coin having a falling out with cheap tricks sort of like what happened with bill of coin and kiss and you know both bands struggling to maintain their popularity i think obviously kiss has done a better job in the long run of maintaining popularity in the terms of being able to sell out arenas and and sheds and stuff like that 
but at the same time, cheap trick is blowing kiss away when it comes to being creative. Simple as that. It's funny because Tommy and, and I talked about this earlier, I think in a private conversation, but it is really weird though. If you think about it, their ascension, they went down from playing arenas almost as fast as they did to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. But cause by the mid eighties, it was, it was over with meaning playing early playing arena, really. Head, being a headliner at an arena tour. Yeah. I, I can't, re- again, I, I can't remember if it was the one-on-one tour that I saw in Minneapolis. God, I love that record too. I absolutely love, that's one of my absolute favorite cheap trick albums, but I remember going into that show and going, it was sort of like the a kiss creatures of the night tour moment. Like, Oh, this place is half empty. And these are the mm-hmm. headliners. And you know, what, what's, what's cheap trick got in store next year. If this is, and to your point, Mark, they fell out of headliner fashion very quickly, like within two album couple, cycles. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of three I years. Think, but, but that was the, the crux of it was that lawsuit with Epic because yeah. not only did that help um, all shook up not to, to hit its potential, it also affected one-on-one, which was just as good, if not better, of a record. Mm-hmm. And then it, the slide continued. And I would say that there was just as many gems on Next Position, Please. And then after that was uh, Standing on the Edge. And they weren't getting any support from their label. And finally, after The Doctor, their label, they were done with their contract. And so then they shopped. And I don't remember how they ended up where they did again with them with uh the the album that the flame was on but it was just it was just a long slow ride out of hell well it's also during the 80s it's it felt like to me cheap trick were becoming less confident in being cheap trick and more susceptible to the pressures of record labels and everything else telling them to sound like this, to write like this, to do it this way. And, you know, and again, that to me, it felt like that all that all culminated with the flame. Look, there was right. a lot. Of, look, Hart was in that same boat. Yeah. Because there's no reason that Tonight It's You shouldn't have been a number one single. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Look, you're preaching to the choir here. You're absolutely yeah. right. But, I can't take it. Borderline, heaven's falling. You know, a one on one. If you want my love, I mean, on and on. There's so many gems on that stretch of records. But again, you know, it just didn't for some reason. Here in Detroit, funny because they always had a ton of airplay. Um, I remember them playing something that Kiss never did. They play. They played Joe Louis Arena cheap trick did and then the following year Kobo and then you know then it was the clubs and the smaller theaters after that they do some like radio station shows and still like headline the 10 band bill at Pine Knob and stuff but by then it was you know you I remember we could go see them they'd play like street fairs and stuff in, in yeah. Detroit you know you know beer tasting uh, it was don't get me wrong I'm like you Michael I mean I, I must have seen Cheap Trick 30 40 times easy 
Yeah, um, you could see them. Yeah. I mean, honestly, especially if you're in the Midwest. Yeah, they were. You could pretty much find a cheap trick show every month within a you know a, a few hour drive. That's, that's what sucks being so out in California times. is they don't they don't tour out here in California unless there was somebody like a Rod Stewart or a Sticks or whatever. Um, I saw them once at Ryan's Corner. And the only way you could get in is if you had um, Joe Camel Bucks. <laughs> and luckily at the time I was living out in Green Isle, which is in the middle of nowhere. And Cheryl, my wife, worked at the this place in in Young America where they processed all that stuff. So people would send in their Joe their Joe Camel Bucks, and if you had a certain number, you could get a bag or a T-shirt or a leather jacket or whatever. So she just took all of the tabs because they were going to go in the garbage, and gave them to me, and I handed them in to go in to see Cheap Trick. So literally, the only people that were at that show because it was being promoted by Camel were people who had the had the Joe Camel Bucks to get in. Oh my God, that's crazy! I mean, that's as bizarre as it gets. Yeah, and and and. You know, when you think about that, it's like a lot of bands would have said, screw this. You know, we used to headline, headline and sell out arenas. And now we're playing a Joe Camelbuck show. <laughs> you know, right. we're not in this. for. We're not going to well, do this anymore. Guys, let's tie this back into Kiss. Had the reunion not happened. Yep. They wouldn't have had much more of a choice. Well, I, I, I. I've said this before. Let's go all the way back to if they hadn't taken the makeup off. Kiss in the 80s would have probably followed the same trajectory as Cheap Trick did in the 80s. Well, they did pretty much. I mean, they were having a hard by the time by the you know, the 1980s show at the Palladium. Well, you know, I, I, I mean, going into the mid 80s, I mean, no, no, once no took, I, I one, get that. Yeah. But but the, the cracks yes. were already there. The, right you no, know, that, that that's the whole point. You know, the the Palladium show, um, the the poor attended Creatures of the Night tour, um, you know, it would have just continued to get worse and worse through regardless the 80s. of how great the music was. Exactly. It, if they would have kept the, mu- the makeup on, I would bet by 85 Kiss would have been playing. They would have been headlining, but they would have been stuck to playing two or three thousand seat theaters. I'm going to go a step further. Had had they kept Peter and Ace, it would have went down even faster. Yeah, because they didn't. They didn't look the part. They didn't look the part. They didn't. They didn't fit the '80s. Correct. They. they it, that's just a fact, guys. You can you know, argue with me all you want. I really don't care. But um, there's a reason that you know Peter's career didn't. Well, number one, he didn't help himself. But he didn't but, look. He didn't. Yes. He image was everything. It. Yeah. Image was everything back then. And, uh, you know, all you have to do is go and they're online easily. You want to go see picture. What was the band he was playing with, with the female singer in the, uh, was that the keep? No, that was, that was with Mark St. John. I think um, I could be, I don't know. I'm not a really big geek on this. But stuff. No, I, I know. Go. You're right. Go look for some photos of Peter from the, first half of the 80s look you know he's not balls looking of fire like, balls of fire balls of fire there you go he he's um, not looking like an 80s rock star he's looking like 
a dad who wants to be an 80s rock star. Well, if you look at the pictures with the Penridge Chris Alliance, I mean, that is just embarrassingly so. It looked like a couple guys out of the 50s wanting to play. Look, again, you know, history is, is crystal clear here. They didn't sound modern. They didn't look modern. And other than the fanboy types that, you know, just showed up and, hey, it's Peter Chris, nobody cared. I mean, and, uh, I, I mean, I think you could say that even with Kiss, after taking the makeup off, if it was just Gene, they could have gone the same way because Gene wasn't the sex symbol during the 80s. They needed Paul, Paul Stanley was what, yeah. what kept them on the covers as pinups and yeah. unmasked Paul Stanley. Yes, he could still, he was still relevant in, in that department. And, and, right and, along and I'm not saying Eric, Eric Carr wasn't a good looker as well, but he's the drummer. He's behind a drum kit. He's not well, that, going to be the, 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 the pinup star. That's it. You could put, you could put at the time. And now keep in mind, we're just using uh, apples to apples. You know, Steven Tyler and Paul Stanley on, on Hit Parader on the cover didn't look dumb and, and no it worked it worked yeah it worked and uh but if you wouldn't have had peter chris you know um yeah. it just just wouldn't have worked and um you know and and too i think it's true too i mean if you read peter's book he wasn't ready for the 80s he you know it just he was a mess you know and uh and this is guys you know it's funny whenever we talk about peter Yes, everybody here, the three of us agree. Incredible talent. Kiss wouldn't be to kiss without him. All that stuff. But you got you can't lie to yourself and go, oh, you know what? Uh, by 1980, if he was he given was a chance, great. he could have been yeah. a huge star in no. the 80s. No, 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 no he wasn't even even he wasn't even writing and playing music that sonically fit what was going on in the 80s. You think his solo album in 78 stuck out I, you know none of that was working in the 80s there's a reason those records didn't sell well that's all and uh that's just being kind to say that can you like some shit you can like the whole thing but it, again timeline is everything sticks ario Speedwagon, van halen you know look at what was going on then you you don't Hell, Kiss wasn't even competing with that stuff at that time, you know, let alone, you know, Peter or Ace for that matter, you know. And when Ace finally st did start getting his footing again, he fit right in, you know. Well, uh, but with, but with, he had to start with Todd Haworth being brought into the band. Yes, unfortunately. And I, that's no slight on Todd. I think he's a great guy. But I liked I liked the the early if, as someone who collected the demos and stuff, I was really happy with the stuff he was doing with Richie. And you know what I mean? I was actually kind of di disappointed when the first Frilly's Comet record came out. M just, mu musically, Ace had the sound, but I think I would, I, I think they said, listen, if we're going to have Ace Frilly come back from a, an image and look standpoint, we need that good looking blonde guy in the band. You Ooh, know, was with cheap trip. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, homework. 
I, I would love to ask everybody who is a Cheap Trick and Kiss fan what I alluded to in this discussion. What is it that makes Cheap Trick such a connection to Kiss fans? Amongst all of the other opening bands that have been on Kiss tours, I'm not saying they're, I mean, Rush is amazing and ACDC is amazing, but for some reason, Cheap Trick has connected with more KISS fans than I think any other support act ever did. Why? What is it that they that connects for you as a fan of both bands? Is it the music? Was it the awkward, strange look of Cheap Trick? I I'd just like to get get some insight as to what people think that why why that cheap trick kiss connection is so long-standing amongst KISS fans. Tommy. I got nothing. <laughs> all right, look, I got... I got all right, all right. There. So you got your homework. Um, I want to remind everybody, do not forget, check out the brand new Three Sides of the Coin Radio. All you got to do is go over to threesidesofthecoinradio.com. You'll find all the information and you're going to find exactly what you need to say to your Amazon Alexa device to listen to us. And is this, is this it? Is this Amazon? Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't get your tech support from Mark on how to do this because the Mark doesn't even, he, he's waiting for Alexa to show up at his front door. He thinks it's a real woman. Um, mm-hmm. We've got still, some very I'm still using CDs. Man. Yeah, we've got some very <laughs> cool guest playlists already submitted and lined up. So we're going to start changing up the, the the playlists every few weeks, and it's going to have some cool guests, um, people that have been on the show, people that haven't been on the show. Um, it'll be fun. So check out three sides of the coin radio.com. and. Uh, that's it. We'll see everybody next week. The show. Visit threesidesofthecoin.com. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow and rate us on Spotify. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We appreciate your support. Voices for Three Sides of the Coin. Provided by LarryDavisVoice.com and by JessicaMarsVoice.com. That's Mars with a Z.